We are going on tour. The Glamorous Trash Podcast and my book tour have collabed and we're coming to a city near you. Click the link in the show notes to to get all of the deets. We're coming to New York City on June 4th. We are kicking off an event with Jon Stewart. No big deal. That's our very first show in New York City. Then we're coming to Washington, D.C., Nashville, Chicago, Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Seattle, Portland, and Los Angeles. So get your tickets now. We are doing three different events because, you know, I'm always doing the most. That's just on brand, right? First, there's a glamorous trash party. It's the podcast meets the book tour meets Coachella, a live show featuring podcast segments, book segments, a very special guest. And of course, there's a runway walk at the end for people to show off their fits because the dress code to every event is obviously glamorous trash. We are also doing a cookie country club. It's the anti-country club country club. And it's very dreamy. You get like a bunch of products. There's little events. And it's a more intimate event where you meet other cookies and listen to a book chat with what me and another special guest and then the final event the behind the bangs writing workshop i finally did it put it together put together this workshop because i wrote this book in many ways for younger me and younger me would not have gotten off her couch unless there was also a workshop being taught i wanted the gyms i wanted i wanted the knowledge i wanted the education that's what i would have wanted so i've decided i'm doing it and in the workshop is going to be the six writing gyms that took me forever to learn 15 years in my 15 year career as a tv writer and author and blah 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 all the other things i've written there are six things that i always use and all of those are in this workshop so if you have an interest in writing sign up all the ticket links are live today click the show notes click my instagram we are coming to a city near you and there's going to be some meet and greets i'll sign some copies of books we'll give out more books and i have uh, some pieces of merch that i'm taking on the road and i'm gonna give them out at the shows Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates the memoirs of badass female celebrities who have been torn down by tabloids, dissected by social media, and faced heartaches and triumphs and come out of it all even stronger. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I am a writer, comedian, and filmmaker. And this week, we have a very special Valentine's Day episode. You know, we're in a weird time in history. It's a weird Valentine's Day, and we're bringing you a weird episode. We are book clubbing Lonnie Anderson and Burt Reynolds' competing divorce memoirs. Huge shout out to OG book clubber Amy Shapiro, who inspired this episode. And it's why I love the digital book club so much because so many great ideas come out of it. So Bert wrote a devastating memoir about this divorce in 1994. And then in 1995, Lonnie's pushed to release her own book and defend herself. So we're covering both of those books today. And stay tuned because at the end of the episode, we're going to hear a little bit from Lonnie Anderson herself. They had one of the nastiest splits in Hollywood. He accused her of sleeping around. She claimed he beat her. And just last May, Lonnie went to court to get the reported $155,000 Burt still owes her from their divorce settlement. 
So before we dive into the episode, I just want to say, because both books are on the podcast, we have to skip so much of both of them. I read Lonnie's book. It's really great. It's such a cool read. If you're intrigued by her, I recommend you buy the book or go to my Instagram at Chelsea DeMontes and read the recap of it because there's so many things we had to skip. One of my favorite things is that when Lonnie is nominated for an Emmy, she's walking around like, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And Lonnie is like a blonde bombshell, just like the hottest woman. And Mary Tyler Moore looks at Lonnie and goes, oh, honey, pretty never gets the sympathy vote. (gasps) I gasped. (laughs) I I was like, oh, God, it felt... um, It it felt both uh, eviscerating and like a knife, but like a knife that's like uh, where it's like she's like stabbing you with a knife, but like so that you can pull it out and like protect yourself with it. I could do a whole podcast episode about that quote alone, but we're going to get into everything Lonnie and Bert right now. And um, one very funny thing is that in the episode, you are going to hear me and my guest discover that he read the wrong book. And it is all my fault. I sent him the wrong book. He read Burt Reynolds' 2014 memoir. But luckily, I had read Burt Reynolds' 1994 memoir, and I read Lonnie's. So we had all three books covered on the podcast, and something very funny and so worth it comes out of being able to compare both of Bert's books and his take on Lonnie. So it works out in the end, but you're going to hear us figure it out in the episode. And today's episode is especially special because our first guest is our very first male guest. And he read the very first gentleman's memoir that I've ever had on this podcast. And we're still the Apple spotlight, you guys. So, um, hey, Apple, happy happy Valentine's Day to you, Apple. Thing, and thank you for your Valentine. So let's dive in. Please welcome my very good friend, Rob Anderson. Hi, Rob. Hi. Hi, how are you? Thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, Chelsea, I'm great. It's so good to see you. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good to see you. I'm so excited. So Rob is a massive TikTok and Instagram star. He is a comedian with many talents and ran the marketing for Grindr, Uber, The Infatuation when they were still startups. And he is the most incredible business bish. And that's the title I'm giving you. Like, you're <laughs> such a business bish. Like, uh, and his videos are sent to me every day by people being like, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. And I'll be like, um, yeah, we've been friends for like over a decade. Like, I know, like, I've seen the video already. Um, you're also truly a hidden genius. And I say hidden because your content is so funny and so lovable and so likable that maybe people don't realize you're like a Menza genius. Like, I, you're so smart. And I remember, I, I remember being comedians in Chicago at like 22 and you had figured out how to work from home and live in a fabulous house off of all these like weird life hacks while I was living in a windowless room for $300 a month and stealing hot sauce from Chipotle. And I, I was just always so wowed by you. So that's your bio. Well, I don't know how fabulous my apartment was. Um, I, m- my hot water heater lasted four minutes. I had four minute showers. So I guess compared to the struggling improv life, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> That's how low the bar was. Wow. I didn't yeah. realize it. Four minute showers. That's tough. Um <laughs> So, Rob, I introduce all my guests with the story of how we first met. And so 
we met a long time ago, so please jump in if I get things wrong and I want to hear your version. Rob and I met 10 to 12 years ago. I was trying to do the math and I was like, has it been 12 years? Um, I'm not sure. I had done this comedy competition show in Chicago. It was literally my very first attempts at comedy, um, which is devastating because now evidence exists of like the first time I tried to write a joke. And I worked so hard in this competition and I got to second place and it was like so hard. And then I don't remember how we first met, but I remember you entering the next round of that competition and you came over to my house and I was like telling you about it and you went, Rob went on to win first place by miles. Like he blew the other competitors away. It was a point system. Rob had like a hundred points more than the person in second place. And it was a solo comedy competition and it's still what you do now. And you like remained the best at it. And I remember like 12 years ago watching you just like devastate this competition. And you also, when you were at my house, you lent me the movie, The Room. But yeah. it was <laughs> it was um, when Netflix sent you those little DVDs and you're supposed to return them. So I still have it. Like as if I'm going to give it back to you one day. My copy of The Room is the DVD Netflix sent you. Oh, my God. I probably ended up having to pay for that for you some You probably did. I'm really sorry. <laughs> we've also, throughout our friendship, we've partied a lot. The last time I saw Rob, we were both living in New York. And we were like, we're going clubbing. And we got, we, we had like four clubs to go to. We went to the first one. We both got so wasted at the first club. We were in a cab, puking out the windows at home by 11. But I do have some fun, like drunken gifts from us from that night. But like we went out and like went right back home. It was our very first one. And there were maybe like 15 people. Like there weren't even a lot of people there. There like, weren't I remember- a lot of people there. There was like a fog machine and there were about 15, 20 people. It was in Park Slope, I think. Yes, yes, I do remember that. Yeah. yeah. And we, we were like, we're having a night out. And it was so pathetic. I'm pathetic <laughs> is a theme I'm pulling through. <laughs> but it was also so fun. Like, I just remember us dancing and, well, and then puking. Yeah, we're fun and, and pathetic. There's we're like a f- pathetic fun. You know, I love that for us. That's a great brand. Okay, so Rob read Burt Reynolds' book, and I read Lonnie Anderson's. So first, Rob is going to give us a handful of highlights from Burt's whole book so we can really get to know him. Then I'm going to go through some highlights from Lonnie's book, and then we're going to get into the divorce and the he said, she said, and dissect all of it. So Rob, tell me a little bit about Burt. This memoir, I, I I have it myself. I skimmed it. Every time I stopped to read a little, I caught something spicy. Like every single time I stopped, I was like, ooh. Um, so I'm very excited for what you have to share. So I do want to say the book that you had me read is Enough About Me, uh, his book Enough About Me. And so I think he had maybe two. Oh, unreal. I have a different book. Okay. Burt Reynolds, My Life. Well, this is good. I didn't even know he had two memoirs. We're finding out on air. Okay. So he talks about Lonnie a bit in this, but it's not, the whole book is not totally about her. I did do a lot of research on him and things he said about her. So I'm more than prepared to defend him in some circumstances, not all of them. <laughs> we, I, I told Rob, I was like, it'll be like we're divorce lawyers. Like, I'll come to represent Lonnie and he'll come to represent Bert. And he was like, I'm so upset I have to represent this man. <laughs> <laughs> 
though I am physically attracted to men, uh, I don't like men. Um, and <laughs> Very fair. So I was, uh, this concept's genius, um, but I did think that I was a little uh, hesitant because um, if it's a man versus a woman, I'll always take the side of a woman. I just find it to be more interesting. And especially because the man's Burt Reynolds and the whole reason why they're uh, famous is because of him. It's just much more interesting to read her side since she's not why they're famous. So I was a little hesitant, however. First off, objection. Lonnie has a career of her own, right? <laughs> she was very famous before Burt Reynolds. How dare? Okay, please continue. <laughs> fair. Totally fair. <laughs> um, and uh, however, I I like him. Uh, you you like him a lot, although he, he isn't someone that I'd probably hang out with ever or would have hung out with. Uh, I, I You do like him, and you get a good sense of, of who he is. Oh, yeah. And you know what? I have a totally different book that is about the divorce, so maybe let's we'll both pitch in. Okay. So this book is a memoir of all the people that he's met in his life, and they show him... It, it shows who he is a bit, but through his interactions with other people. And he talks about everything from rumors about him to all of his relationships, which actually give a really good sense of why this marriage didn't work out well, like his relationships with uh, Sally Field um, and uh, Dinah Shore. So uh, it, it really fills in like kind of who he was, and it leads up to his failed marriage. And when um, was that book written? It was later in his life. It was actually, I think, 2014. That's incredible. Okay, I have his 1994 memoir. In his book jacket, it says, um, and then there were the women he wishes he could have married, including Dinah Shore, Sally Field, Chris Everett, rather than the woman he did marry, the voluptuous Lonnie Anderson. Reynolds reveals the dramatic and shocking truth of their celebrated marriage, how they met, the perception of them, and how he finally became a father and how the marriage ultimately turned into a living nightmare he had to escape. <laughs> like, what a dick fuck. <laughs> like, he, I, hate, he hated her. Hated he her. Hated her. So I love that you have his later in life perspective to know if he softened at all. But Spoiler he, alert. He never softened. Never softened. Okay. No. Okay. Tell, tell us everything. Okay. So um, I was going to start with like his relationships heading in and also a little bit yes. about his dad. Yes. Um, Give us the highlights. I think knowing where he, uh, how he was growing up and how his dad was to him says a lot about how he kind of approaches relationships and especially how he approached being a father. So his dad was an asshole. Um, okay. That's a his, theme. Real theme yeah. in memoirs and uh, life. <laughs> And he understood his dad was an asshole. Um, Big Bert was his dad's name, uh, same name. Uh, but he forgave him a lot for it. He was, like, just okay with his dad being an asshole. And all he wanted was the affection of his dad or to say that his dad was proud of him or that he loved him. And uh, in this beginning chapter where he talks about his dad, it actually is very telling. You get a good sense of Bert's sense of humor. Um, he's funny. He's really yeah. funny. And he's really honest. So he talks about how his dad was prejudiced against um, in, so indigenous people, how he had a girlfriend who was half indigenous and his dad would not let her in the house. Uh, and how he never forgave his dad for that and how uh, he wished his dad wasn't so prejudiced. But on the flip side, there was a, a kid in his school who uh, was abused by his parents and Bert's dad let them him live with them. But that kid was white. For sure. <laughs> yeah, so they, de they deserve love. <laughs> <laughs> he was um, white and surely Republican. Surely. So here's a question, too. Uh, I, 
in Bert's 1994 memoir, he's memoir, he says he's a quarter Cherokee. Is that mentioned at all in this book? No. Wild. Okay. Wow. Well, that's weird. <laughs> Literally really in the book, weird. he's like, uh, my son who he adopted had a big head of hair, which reminded me of me, a quarter Cherokee, just like his pops. I wonder if it was some self-hate, possibly. Well, it was he was prejudiced against a girl who was half seminal. Or possibly Bert was not a quarter Cherokee. It's just, it's just not tracking, you know, because that would that would come from one of his parents. Um, and also, you know, oh boy, this is fucked up. <laughs> I would need to read more to understand it, but it sounds like maybe he wasn't. Okay, please continue. Um, so uh, you get a sense of who um, Bert is and how funny he is when he talks about his dad, some of the things he did. But at the end of this, he says... Um, Bert was strict while I was growing up, but he never mistreated me, at least not on purpose. Um, He taught me to accept the consequences of my actions as a man. Um, He died in his sleep 10 years uh, after my mom at age 95. He never said he loved me, but he did finally say he was proud of me, and that was enough. Oh, no. (laughs) So that's Bert's relationship with his dad, which I think says a lot about his relationship with his son uh, later on. Um, But I thought that was worth mentioning. I mean, he never said he loved him. That's also in Lonnie's book. She talks about how her family said they loved each other and Bert's family didn't. So it was just like his whole life was trying to get his parents to say I love you and they just wouldn't because they just didn't. But proud of him after becoming a mega superstar, it's like, wow, it really took a lot. I mean, Bert accomplished a lot. He, he was incredibly hardworking, very accomplished. He had a ranch. He built his own theater, all that stuff. Like... Big Bert wasn't proud earlier. The the I think the benefit of maybe reading about twenty years after he had written that book, this one, is that there are some things where though he was really hardworking, he had a lot of regrets about not feeling like he was respected. Uh, like the movies he did were very commercial, and he did things because they were fun, and he had a good time shooting this, or he liked the leading lady, had a crush on her, but he never really took acclaimed roles, with the exception of Boogie Nights. So I think that the uh, later on, he has a lot of regrets in that way. Like, though he was really accomplished in some ways, he didn't feel like he was respected as, in, in some other ways. As like an artist. I, I yes. have to say, like, that journey always annoys me. It's it's like the comedian who's like, but I actually want to do a dramatic movie. And it's, it's like, well, why? You're incredible and we want to laugh. You know what I mean? It's also the same thing where, you know, comedies rarely win an Oscar because for some reason it doesn't have as much respect. Like they don't have as much depth because they're making you laugh instead of making you cry. Where like, obviously, because I'm a comedian, I would argue that comedies are often quite harder than dramas to pull off. But like this whole like who respects what it's like you, he made thirty eight million dollars in his marriage to Lonnie Anderson alone. Like in a decade, he made thirty eight million dollars back in the 80s and 90s. Like if we cannot find respect for that, <laughs> something is wrong. Totally. Uh, yeah, I think he just because he was in it so long, he was in the industry for so long. I think something happens where people feel like they want the next thing and they want what's next. And for him, he had done so much with what he had. The only next thing was to win an Oscar. And he talks about it a ton. Like That's he so just, sad. <laughs> That's devastating. Like, it is. It is. He talks about it in his chapter with the divorce. He talks about it in his, he has his own chapter at the end that he gives himself. And 
in it, he just talks about all of the roles that he uh, could have had. And they were like The Godfather, um, uh, Rocky. They were all these roles that were all won Oscars. And he was just saying how he had passed them up and they were huge regrets of his. Oh, my God. I have to say that's really sad. Like, it's almost like a list of, like, I could have fucked that person, and I didn't. Now I'm dying. He literally says it. That's exactly it. <laughs> That's crazy. And also, it's like a weird brag. Like, why are you bragging that you had the role, but then also, yeah, that was a dumb move. Like, why did you pass up? The, like, if you thought it was good, why would you pass it up? It's kind of that lesson of, like, you have to follow your heart or you're going to be on your deathbed l- listing off roles that got up, that got Oscars. <laughs> That's literally, he was on his deathbed writing this. I mean, he died a few years after, and that's exactly what it is. It's this list of, this could have been me. But there's something interesting, Chelsea. It's like, he has lists, he lists here. I'll go, I'll jump to it really quick. He had lists so many of them. Like, he lists dozens and dozens of everything in the world that was acclaimed that it makes you think, like, was he really up for these roles or did he just not get them? Like, there's no way he passed up all of these. It's impossible. I, I remember, um, uh, and she'll never listen to this, so it's okay. But I remember, like, coming to L.A. and this girl was like, oh, my God, I'm up for this pilot on, like, HBO. or says something huge, right? It's like, I'm up for it. And I was like, whoa, that's incredible. And, like, I later learned that she'd gotten an audition for it. Which is just not the same thing. Like, it's it's just not the same thing. And so I feel like, you know, Bert got an audition or or some, or some his agent was like, they really wanted you, buddy, but they had to go with so-and-so. And then he was like, I believe that. I'd like to believe that. So it's now true. It's totally the case. I think this has a lot to do with the divorce, actually, and how much money was zapped from him and how much I think it just took so much out of him. He felt worthless. He had to sell all of his possessions. He had to sell his Golden Globe. He had to sell all these things to finalize the divorce settlement. He sold his Golden Globe? He had to sell everything of his. Now, granted, he does say that he had too much stuff. And he was like, I was glad to let go of all my 20 pairs of boots and all this stuff. But because that settlement was dragged out for two decades um, with Lonnie, uh, he had to do it all to finally be rid of it. And so I think this book was written in a way where he had to have, he had to make money. And he also was trying to make, make himself have some worth. Like he at the end was saying, I had the the one flew over the cuckoo's next terms of endearment, taxi driver, apocalypse now, all of these things I could have been a part of. Like, I think he's trying to give himself some self-worth at the end of this because he had literally nothing after this divorce. That is so sad. One, worst two reasons to write a memoir. For money and I have no (laughs) self-esteem, maybe this book can pretend that I do. Um, terrible reasons. Also, yeah, a lot of his made of the divorce of like Lonnie took him through the ringer and Lonnie took all his money. Lonnie and the divorce do- literally last decades after he passes away, Lonnie sues like his estate to get the last $155,000 he owed her. And we'll get into it in the Lonnie book, but it's like he really makes it out that like she was a gold digger and took all his money from him when he divorced her. But in her book, it's like, Bert lost control of all his assets. By the time they even got to court, he was like, I have no money. Before the divorce began, like he'd already spent it and lost it. And so, and she had put so much money in that she wanted things back for herself. Like he told her to sell her house and live with him. So now she needed a house back. And that in going for that and and in the fight over it, he had so many lawyers that he lost everything. But he really makes it seem like it's Lonnie's fault. Like Lonnie ruined my life. 
There's truth to both of there's definitely truth to both sides of this, which is what we're here talking about. I think Bert is self admittedly in this. He says that he is not great with money, um, and he doesn't make he doesn't keep track of it in a way that other people did, and he wished he was better at it. And I think that lifestyle was fine for Bert. I think Bert was able to have boats and houses and things when it's just him. And I think when there was a second person and eventually a third person in his life who were also living in that way. He just couldn't keep track of finances. So she's right uh, that he uh, was a mess in that way, but he was totally able to stay afloat on his own. And I think when she came in and I think that she wanted, he says in his memoir that she really wanted um, the lifestyle of someone wealthy and well-to-do and buying designer gowns that she would only wear once on a red carpet because she wanted to be that star. I think that sort of lifestyle wasn't something that he could also support. Well, and so, and that's in this memoir. He writes, yeah. like, she wanted, okay, because that's so, that's also in the first memoir. Cause I, I have the memoir. It's like, every dress was $10,000 and she'd only wear it once. And I'm yeah. like, Bert, let's be honest. I know what dresses cost. Every dress wasn't $10,000. Like, it's just, they just weren't. That's not what all dresses are, especially in that year. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're not, because also they're being custom made by a designer. So, so it's especially not $10,000. And, like, they like to dress starlets. I was just like, dress, like, Bert, you got to know your fashion here. You know what I mean? Like, no one's buying that every dress was $10,000 and she would only wear it once. And then in this memoir, he says she would, she told him she would give it away to poor people. And then he kind of makes fun of poor people for a second where he's like, oh, yeah, like some homeless person's going to walk around in her gown. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I really thought that discredited him quite a bit. There's this bit at the end of his own chapter that says, I've been rich, I've been poor, and miserable both times. Rich and miserable is better. I don't know how much money I've made and spent, and I don't want to know. So I think that says a lot about how he doesn't know how much a dress costs. He doesn't know how much things cost. He just knows that they were spending a lot of money, and he just made up figures in his head that totally make sense. But he also says, I'm not proud of the fact that I always haven't handled it well. Money was never at the top of my list. I just wanted enough so I didn't have to worry about it. My biggest mistake was trusting people who took advantage of me. I went through bankruptcy, and it's not pleasant. Uh, and the last thing he says here is, I didn't save my money like some people. I've owned big houses, ranches, boats, private jets, and I've enjoyed them all, but I don't miss them. I feel like a man who's been blown away in a hurricane. His possessions are gone, but he's thankful to be alive. I just have no sympathy. <laughs> <laughs> I have no sympathy. And like, this comes from a place of like, if you had a private jet and you lost it, like no sympathy for you. Like you really should have taken care of your private jet or sold it or hired an accountant. And I just, for people who come into wealth, like, I don't know. I don't know. I think my jealous rage is just like, you had a jet? Like, shut the fuck up. And, like, no one feels bad for you, sir. No. Like, no. Yeah. Also, so Lonnie Anderson later in life ends up having an estate sale, which I would have died to go to, um, of all of the gifts Bert gave her. And she does it really sweetly where she's like, I've enjoyed these for a long time, but I don't really want them anymore. And a ton of them are portraits of her. So he he loved art. He would find artists and he would have portraits made of Lonnie, like naked and a bikini. So there's just like dozens and dozens of giant Lonnie Anderson portraits that she's selling off. And then also just jewels and jewels and jewels. And I guess when she asked him if she could sell it, he said, oh, honey, like, if you try and sell those things, you'll be there for years. Like, it'll take you years to sell all the gifts I gave you. And so while 
maybe, yes, Lonnie was like, give me diamonds every day. Um, he certainly was like, okay. <laughs> okay, yes. Okay, yes. Here's a diamond every day. <laughs> and he seems to not cop to that, though. It's like, oh, she did all these crazy things. It's like, well, I... I don't think she had all these portraits painted of her. I, I don't think she gave herself necklaces from you every day. I think that, uh, and there's a part that I definitely am, uh, would love to talk about. I don't know if maybe we should wait until you have more highlights from Lonnie to get to the real meat of this, but, yeah. or I can just, I can just get to it now. Um, he says that he feels tricked by her. And so he, <laughs> he feels like she tricked him. And I think the difference with, um, Lonnie versus Sally Field or Dinah Shore is that um, he likes to date actresses. Bert's thing is that he is into actresses. Actually, there's this really bizarre thing, really, really bizarre thing, where he goes to, I think it's, I think it was Tokyo. He goes to Tokyo and uh, Miko Mayama, uh, he falls in love with her and flies her to the U.S., has to convince her parents uh, to fly her to the U.S. to be an actress here in the U.S., and he, like, he almost, like, has this thing where he has an eye for an actress and he just kind of wants her or um, uh, uh, f- finds something um, very attractive about it. So that was just a bizarre thing to just, like, pull someone from Tokyo to just be his girlfriend in the United States. Um, but also with Dinah and Sally Field, he likes that they uh, have respect. They had this respect in their industry. They were actresses that people adored and they did good work and he really liked that about them. Um, but he uh, wasn't someone that made made choices that were like, um, and he self-admittedly this way, he gets into something and, and doesn't know what he wants really. And he doesn't know uh, which way it's headed. He can't commit to something. Him and Sally Field propose to each other. He says, he always says this, Dozens of times we proposed to each other. Him and Dinah had proposed to each other a, a bunch of times. Like, you could just tell us something weird about it where there there isn't this commitment level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, proposing marriage on a whim, <laughs> big red flag. <laughs> big, big red flag. Yes. So, okay, so let me, here's what I think we should do. I'm going to take us through some Lonnie highlights, and then I have the timeline of her and Bert's relationship according to Lonnie. And and then I feel like that'll give us a trellis to discuss what, what really went down. Because I also think, just like you said, he... He likes digging at Lonnie for not being a quote unquote real actress or respected actress like that. I don't know if I believe that like, oh, he was more drawn to Sally Field or he's saying this now because he thinks it'll hurt Lonnie's feelings. Um, Okay. Yeah. So here's some highlights from Lonnie's book. So she's a stunning little Miss Perfect. Um, We definitely would not have been friends in school. Like reading about her as a child terrified me. She like wore (laughs) white gloves and high heels from like a a very young age. And she said she was a little church girl who would not sleep around, but was always dating four men at once. Like had men everywhere, like bows. And also it's the years of like, it's like in the 50s. So because of the way telephones worked, she could have four men at all times, and they, they didn't really know. Like, they were in contact, like, once a week or something. So, but she's like, I never went beyond first base, and I was just, like, creating blue balls over the United, like, all over the United States. So then she's, like, a pageant queen. She's sort of, like, a, kind of like a famous teenager in her town. Like, everyone knows Lonnie Anderson. And at 19, she becomes a single mom, and she had gotten married she eloped to this guy named bruce and it immediately turns abusive then her wedding night this is another thing about memoirs written a long time ago the women don't the women use words like he was really bugging me but then they'll describe like being stalked and almost murdered 
So they'll be like, he was really bugging me. He would take my car apart after work and come by my house with a gun every day. <laughs> You're like, okay, don't use the word bugging you. Um, so then she gets pregnant. And because the first night was so awful and she like shoved him off her, both of them are like, we haven't really had sex yet. How are you pregnant? And a doctor has to like explain like your your hymen was partially broken. Sperm could get through and like you are having a baby now. And it's and in the moment, I, of course, was like, oh, that's so, I wonder why she didn't get an abortion. And then the next sentence is like, yeah, this is 1964. Abortion is illegal. Of course, you know, I was like, oh, my God. It's just like this thing we don't think about now um, because it is still legal. Thank God. And then, but then her husband is abusive and, like, is going to kill her. And her dad has to, like, pull her out of the house. And she gives birth like she's divorced and giving birth at 19 and having this child and all her other boyfriends send her gifts and like she had to call them and be like hey i got married and had a child like they didn't know um and this guy who sends her a gift is like this singer in this group the brothers four which is like one of her first little famous guys she dated named bob flick who later becomes her fourth husband he is currently her husband this guy who like sends like a gift to the to the waiting room okay so then She's a single mom. Her parents help her raise the kid, and she goes back to school. And when she's in school, she starts doing theater classes. And they're like, stop this. Like, you need a real job. Like, you're a single mom. And they're all like, you're a ruined woman. No one will ever want you again. You're disgusting. You're a mom. Like, you might as well kill yourself. <laughs> and she's like, okay, well, I guess I'll at least take a theater class then. And so... In theater class, she meets this guy, Ross, and 10 years after becoming a single mom, she is she gets married to this guy, Ross, and she's like doing theater all over Minneapolis, and they move to L.A., and they say they're going to give each other six months to make it, and if they don't make it in six months, they're going to move back, and she writes like, now I laugh so hard thinking about that. Like, I can't believe we were so naive to think we could make it in six months, and they did. They did. They moved here and they make it in six months. And so um, Lonnie moves to L.A. At, at 30, which I thought was like a cool, inspiring thing. They always tell you, like, you have to come to L.A. when you're like a baby or like a fetus or like if you could just be like a sperm and an egg separately and move to L.A. then like that's your best chances. And so she moves here at 30 and she gets the show WKRP. And this is like becomes a huge sitcom and Lonnie blows up and uh Ross doesn't blow up and he was a very serious actor and the artist and because she's famous now and he's not he what he cheats on her he becomes an alcoholic he invites his friend to come live with them and is like by the way I'm fucking her um and then they divorce so that's kind of like how she like gets to LA um another highlight is that in Burt's divorce memoir in 1984, he writes that Goldie Hawn talked shit about Lonnie and was like, that girl sucks. You shouldn't be with her. And he writes that he and Dolly Parton, like that Dolly Parton came up to him and was like, honey, like, when are we going to fuck? Like, let's just get it over with because we're going to have to film this movie. And and then in Bert's book, he's like, I won't tell you whether we did or didn't, but like Dolly is the most lovable woman in the world and I love her. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you dropped that shit about Dolly. In Lonnie's book, she mentions Goldie Hawn positively, like, I knew her, we were friends, which I thought was a classy move, given that he said that Goldie shit on her. Right. Lonnie confirms in her book, she's like, yeah, and then he fucked Dolly Parton for a while. <laughs> I 
I, I mean, a lot goes r- around about Dolly Parton. Like, you know, a lot of people haven't seen her husband ever. There's no photos of him. But I, I, I've never seen it confirmed in writing that, like, Dolly Parton cheated on her husband. Or, like, like there's always, like, rumors about her. But, like, the, Lonnie was like, yes, he was sleeping with Dolly Parton. I've never seen that. Have you seen that before? No, not once. And it's she. that's wild that she said it just so casually in her memoir. So casually, to the point where I was like, do people know this exists? Like, people talk about Dolly Parton's love life all the time. And Lonnie Anderson is like, yeah, she slept with Bert. And Bert was like, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. She's the whistle, she's the true whistleblower. But it's so, like, this, I don't think many people have read this memoir. No, I don't think so. Yeah. (laughs) I think it was a big deal at the time, but, uh, or maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I couldn't even pronounce Lonnie's name right here on this podcast. She isn't. (laughs) I mean, you're saying that she was an accomplished actress, which sure, during the, like, at that time, but I mean, the gravity of this is on, Bert, Bert brought this into attention. Okay, okay, I, I will give you that, I will give you that. I will say this, um, you're right about Lonnie Anderson not really being known. Um, a, a long time ago in Santa Fe, my mom was like, we were in a coffee shop and she was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, it's Lonnie Anderson. And I was like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> and in this coffee shop, my mom like lost her mind, and I we we were like right next to Lonnie Anderson in this coffee shop, and she looks exactly like she does. No, and she's had the best, and she says in her book, like I've had surgeries. She's had the best plastic surgery in the world. She looked exactly like the woman on the cover of her book in 1995, and this was like 2000 something. Yeah, she looks incredible. She she looks like brand new. She looks like she was she just popped out of her mom's womb. Something that Bert, I mean, it's very clear that Lonnie's gorgeous. Like there, he yeah. says it, it says that it's the best thing about her. Of course he would. <laughs> of course he would say that. Yeah. Um, but she's gorgeous. And from what you're saying, she, we can say that she's someone who is driven in a man. She's a live. She's in a man's world in a lot of ways. Um, and she's yes. driven in it and finding success in it in her own way. That's not very typical. Yeah, I totally agree. And she, she, he also digs on her in his book. He's like, she did three TV movies back to back. Like she's such trash. Um, so that, and that's true. That's the world she existed in. She played like Jane Mansfield in a TV movie, but in Lonnie's book, she's like, yeah. Um, in my previous marriage to Ross, we had an accountant handle our money who embezzled so much money from us and never paid our taxes. I owed a million dollars to the IRS. I had to pay it back. So I did TV movies all the time to just try and, like, pay this IRS debt. And she's also a single mom and paying for a kid to go to college, which, to me, that that puts you back on Lonnie's side. Like, if if Bert was so rich and, and Bert was, like, taking care of everything, then why didn't he take care of her debt? Like, he, you know, she's clearly taking care of her own stuff, and she doesn't mind doing TV movies. And then he's like, you're trash, um, which I thought was so rude. Yeah, it is rude. I mean, he uh, talks within his chapter about Lonnie. He talks and brings up Sally Field in a way that's just a, a, a contrast to her. Because when he was dating Sally Field, he also says that she, he, of course, read the script to Norma Ray before she had taken the part and said, this is going to get you an Oscar. Like, Bert, did you say that really? Like, yeah, and did I was like, you why really- are you taking to take credit? You're taking credit for Sally's Oscar. Like, fuck off. Yes. Yep, he takes credit for that and then also says how, like, he had given her an opportunity with this movie they did, and they did a bunch of movies after. Um, like, almost like he got helped her get her big break. And then when he was with Lonnie, she didn't have anything that, that Sally Field possessed. She didn't have any of that hard work ethic or anything at all. But 
I didn't even like her taking three TV movies, which were probably the fraction of fraction of a pay of something that Bert would get for one dumb movie that he fly out and shoot for 10 days. She was working so hard to pay off these debts. And he just like he didn't have a care in the world about it. Like, I think it's just so their two worlds. Another thing we should talk about is Bert. Um, Bert gets he's really addicted to pills. His team, Jay, he has extremely intense like. Uh, he goes through rehab. At one point in his life, he is so sick, he loses like 80 pounds. He gets really sickly. And the press starts saying he has HIV and he's gay. And it's this rumor that is used to like destroy his career. And everyone's like, oh my God, this is going to like destroy your career. And in his first book, he has a whole chapter about I'm not gay and I don't have AIDS, which uh, is... <laughs> it's, it's like it's first of all we just have to say like it's no one should be outed um who doesn't want to be outed so so who one who cares but the way the world used it as like a weapon like we're gonna end your career by saying you're gay or saying you have hiv or aids and um in lonnie's book she clearly could have talked about any of that and she navigates it i thought really beautifully and respectfully where she was just like uh, she, she just, like, doesn't give credence to any of that and also in a way where she, like, upholds, you know, gay people and, and upholds, like, how tough HIV was in a way where Bert is like, not me, motherfucker. I'm yeah. a cowboy. Bert talks about that in the, his uh, later memoir, too. Um, he, he Obviously, years have passed, so he, he speaks about it differently. And I think what had happened was in his book, it wasn't about, like, no, no, no. I, that's that's disgu- like that's disgusting. I would ne- that would never be me. I think like what you're saying. It is it was meant to end his career. Where he was saying that with the AIDS crisis, it was so the reaction was so negative toward people with HIV that he said that they would burn makeup brushes. They wouldn't touch anybody that they thought had HIV. So for him, it was about like his career was was potentially ruined and he did have end up having TMJ and he lost all that weight and when he got it back people were like oh it's fine he doesn't have HIV let's all work with him again but he even says in this book which I actually I, I do like that he says this he says something along the lines of um, he uh, had n- no problem with actually like the, the actual rumors that he had the disease like it wasn't that the disease that he had, it was that he just wanted people to know, he wanted to get his career back. But he ends up doing fundraisers for HIV and people ask him, like, why would you go to a fundraiser for HIV if you didn't have it? And he was like, why would you ask me that? You wouldn't ask me that if it was cancer. You wouldn't ask me that if it was something else. And he was going to these fundraisers in the 90s. So I think that he, uh, it says a lot about his character. Like, he doesn't say the right things. He doesn't finesse his language in a way that's like, it's a little off, but his spirit's there. Like, he's he's a good guy deep down with a lot of this stuff. I I really love that. Also, there's this thing that happens where maybe he didn't have, you know, he didn't have HIV, but he was treated like he did. So he yes. knows he knows what happens to you and how it's more than just the disease. It's all this prejudice. And I mean, Lonnie does write all the friends they lost during that era. Like people stopped calling them. People wouldn't hang out with them. And I think something that they don't fully go into is the idea of like she didn't leave either even though the whole town was like doing this horrible thing. And you're so right. And there, there's a whole other podcast about diseases, like even to compare it to 
um, coronavirus. It's like they're trying to stigmatize and have always tried to stigmatize the virus as like a Chinese disease. And like, you know, like the what it, the China virus was something they were trying to catch on because if you can attach a personal um, stigma to it, like people react to it differently. And they were trying to do that with COVID, but in a way where like it didn't fully take Maybe it took, God. It, it, I'm going to say it didn't take in the way they wanted it, and it didn't take the way HIV did, where they really were attaching it to people's homophobia and then, like, making the disease something that it wasn't. Oh, so tragic. Yeah, <laughs> um, okay. Really? Um, all right. So we're going to get into their whole timeline breakdown. The last thing I'll say about Lonnie is that you said she, like, was really in a man's world. And I want to read this paragraph from her book because— it, it it really opened my eyes. I've been fortunate to come up through the entertainment industry with an entire generation of women who have constantly redefined the cultural perception of what a viable, sexy woman is. Candace Bergen, Susan Sarandon, Cicely Tyson, Sybil Shepard, Jacqueline Smith, Goldie Hawn, Meryl Streep, Sally Field, Tina Turner, Susan St. James, Diana Ross, Deirdre Hall, Farrah Fawcett, Liza Minnelli. The list is a rich, inspiring, wonderfully long list. When Jessica Lange won the Oscar for Blue Sky in 1995, I practically leaped out of my chair with glee, and I suspect I wasn't the only one. First, they told us in this business that an actress was all through at 30. Then we pushed the barrier to 40. Now it's 50, and it's still being pushed. When Liza Minnelli's hip failed her at 48, when the years of dancing and kicking took their toll, she didn't retire from kicking. She said, give me another hip, and she went on moving. So first off, I, again, I didn't look at that era as, like, boundary pushing. And also, it's so, like, really think about that list. Susan Sarandon, Sally Field, Tina Turner. They were breaking barriers by having a slightly deeper voice, not having a completely perfect nose, uh, having a flat butt. Like these were the barriers that they were like, Wow. And it, you know what I mean? Where it's just like, uh, Susan Sarandon can't be attractive. And it, like to really take ourselves back to like, oh, that's where we were at one point, that Susan Sarandon was a hideous beast. Like the Sally Field bit that she mentioned Sally Field in that. He also mentions how Sally Field had a hard time because she was like shorter. Like she was shorter and, and brunette and like mousier and she wasn't like a bomb bombshell. And these these are the these are the ceilings, the glass ceilings they're they're pushing through, you know? Like yeah. these slight physical changes. <laughs> slight physical differences. It's truly heartbreaking um and with Lonnie she really ties it to like this is what they asked of us and so um I yes I was vain yes I did go to a trainer that was expensive yes I did do these dresses yes I did get plastic surgery because this is what I had to do to keep working so like to use it as a weapon is really cruel and I really loved that because they tell women and men you have to have, if you have nice skin, people like you more. If you have nice hair, people like you more. If you're hot, people like you more. If you have big boobs, people like you more. If you have big dick, people like you more. And so then you, whatever, whatever it is, um, then it's you true. put all your time into like having nice hair and fashion and being hot and being hot and being hot. And then everyone's like, and you're stupid for doing that. It's like, no, you're actually very smart. The world told you the only way to get power is to be attractive. So if you want to spend all your time looking up fucking fashion and skincare, that seems like a pretty smart choice, especially for women, which is like a devastating thought to have. Yeah, I. Uh, <laughs> Rob, that you're is like, no. <laughs> no, that like, is devastating. No. I I don't spend much time thinking about the barriers that 
women had during that time. Um, I, so I'm you don't, very much you don't go back to 1964 and really ponder. <laughs> I, 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 physical appearance was everything. And even, even when he, when Bert talks about Alani and how, what he liked about her is that she was this, this blonde, like if there's, it, it, it was a huge part of it, but because we're living in the now and what you're saying, like all these, all it's so fucked up now, Hollywood's fucked up. Everything is, um, you just think about how much more we have to go. And then you don't look back and go, wow, it really was like for her to say all these things and be this open-minded and all the challenges she faced, she's a pretty strong woman to get yeah. through all that. Yeah. I really, I really loved her quite a bit after this book and I'm liking Bert more through you, which I did not expect. I'm telling okay. you, Chelsea, I was not expecting to like him as much as I did. And he, he's, there's something, he's so honest, like his honesty with this. And he's got, he's a really good person deep down. Just That's doesn't really always cool. say it the right way. Okay, interesting. Interesting. It, that seems like an apology you give for like your racist grandpa, but <laughs> in this context, it, I yeah, accept it. It feels like it. It feels like it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're diving into the divorce and getting into the he said, she said, and Rob and I are going to go to court. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life, and I can't believe it, but I got to write my own, and it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. The book, you know, I was asked to describe it, and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing, traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, welcome back. So we're diving into the divorce, the timeline of this relationship. This is the he said, she said. They were together for 11 years. The divorce literally lasts decades. Like, it it lasts like two to three years for the initial proceedings, but then lawyers stay working on this divorce for like 20 more 
years. So, Rob, it's interesting because um, we totally have different books that we read. But what is your headline from Bert's book from that one? And I'll tell you the headline from Bert's memoir in 1994. The headline about their relationship? The headline of, like, what happened in this relationship. Like, what's his big takeaway? Uh, Bert's headline would be that Lonnie was a gold digger. Gold digger, 100%. He wanted—she wanted a certain lifestyle, and he was the thing that got her that. Nice dresses, red carpets, money, uh, and and she used him, is what his headline would be. Okay. So— that's the exact same headline. It's the exact same headline in the first memoir, which is tough to see, like, zero growth. <laughs> zero growth in 30 years. It dragged out for 20 years, years so it's, it probably made him even more bitter throughout that time. It's true. It's just that, like, he wrote his first memoir, and then she wrote hers, and knowing what's in hers, it's like he clearly could have taken so- some of her grace into his second one and didn't. She has this little liner note at the beginning that sums it up. He said, she's vain. She's a rotten mother. She slept around. She spent all my money. She said nothing until she was ready to tell it all. So that's her book. And um, Lonnie's headline is, we had a beautiful, complicated relationship. I saw him through multiple pill addictions and recoveries. And at the end, he cheated on me and wanted to make it all my fault, and he's upset he ruined his own life and is pinning it on me. Mm. Uh, so that, that would be, like, her headline. And also, she didn't fight him through all these tablets. Like, he'd do stories on her. He'd do this, and she would just wouldn't do anything. She said she was going to let him go to war with himself. And so this was her book where she finally, like, fights back because he had gone on Morning America after his book came out in this, like, purple suit, and he was just like— Give us both an injection to take a lie detector test. We'll ask who cheated on who. <laughs> and um, the consensus was that he'd really lost his mind from that clip. And so, and even in his first book, he's like, okay, you know, I wasn't my best self that day. But moving on. And she's sort of like, yeah, he's losing his mind. And I'm not any of these things. And I'll tell you every single detail. Uh, another thing that comes out in Lonnie's book is that he was physically abusive. And he would get really jealous, and uh, he would, like, grip her wrists and break the skin on it. He would throw her into walls. He would sprain her wrists. She would have bruises all over her. And then she was like, one time I was playing a high-class hooker in a Lifetime movie, and I had bruises all over me, and hookers don't wear long sleeves. (laughs) Which is like, I want that to be, like, on someone's tombstone. Like, hookers don't wear long sleeves. (laughs) That's a quote in her book. Um, But that he physically was extremely abusive. And I will say on Lonnie, you're like, this was before they got married. Before they got married, he roughed her up multiple times. And he roughed other women up, too. And she still goes on and marries him. And that's something that came out from her book. Um, Did you get a sense from his that that had happened? Nope. So I, out of, with the two of us here, I'm here to have more of a defense toward Bert. I think it's fair. <laughs> you resent me so, you're just like, Chelsea, how dare you put me? Yes, yes. You are, so, you're like a lawyer, whether you believe him or not, you're here to defend Bert. Yes. So I can't say any, whether that's truthful or not, because he doesn't mention abuse at all in this memoir. Um, so I can't say whether that's truth to not, that or not. 
Um, th- there is there is more of a maturity on her side for sure. Uh, th- I was reading all of the articles of when this came out, and he talks about her nonstop to the press, really tries to drag her, and she doesn't say anything until this memoir. So I think there's a maturity to that where it takes a lot to hear crap about you constantly everywhere, and yeah. and, and you have a son, and you're trying to brave through it in a way that's like I'm not going to add to this madness until I can say it in my right in my own terms. So I think there's something graceful about that and respectful. Yeah, and also I think she had no, I mean, to say a woman was a gold digger, stupid, not respected, from someone like Bert, those are very damning in that time. There's not a lot of people ready to rally around a woman in 1984. Um, and I certainly know this from, like, my mom and her divorces. Just, like, if a if a woman got a divorce, like, she was bad, it was her fault, she, she was a trampy slut, why didn't she make it work? And so I can see this really decimating her at the time and her having no options and then being pushed to write this book. I was going to say, uh, I, I wanted to read this part about how, when he had met her, his impression of her. Oh, my God, tell me. Okay, so I uh, they met at the Merv Griffin show. Um, he She's damn good at comedy and part of this intelligent blonde that was perfect for her. I'd never seen anyone quite so striking. I was with Sally then, and that was the extent of it. Um, I didn't see her for a few years later at an awards gala after Sally and I had broken up. She asked me to dance and whispered in my ear, I want to have your baby. Right here, I said, and she said, you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean, and I'm flattered, but don't you think we should find out if we like each other first? The truth is, I never did like her. <gasps> this? Here's the thing, so, though. <laughs> he, I, I laughed at that because he is such a dick. Such a um, dick. And he made it, he makes it out so that she is, has a mission. And she says, I want to have your baby. I want to be your wife. I want this life. And he's like, shouldn't we find out if this is even going to work? Like, I don't even know. Like, isn't this how this doesn't work? And she just, she got what she wanted. And he even says that like, and the fact that like, he's like, and I never did like her. He doesn't even give her any credit at the beginning as uh, it was, there was no interest that was mutual. It was that she got what she wanted and he was just too naive to realize it. I I just, it's so, here's what's crazy about that is that such a dick. And and I just, I can, I can just feel hundreds of men who've said similar things. Like I can just hear their like ghosts, like rallying around him. Like, yeah, I never liked her. Um, It just feels like such a move guys do, but he was with her for 11 years. So if you never liked her, you're an idiot. You're a literal idiot because you're Burt Reynolds. You have a million women. Why did you spend 11 years? 11 years with this woman. It wasn't for money. You had the money, supposedly. You know what I mean? It's just like, you're a liar. Like, at least make a good lie, you know? And, okay, so actually, she describes their meeting in her book. So this is her side of it. At the Merv Griffin show, he asks, how is your marriage? Because I know how hard it can be when the woman becomes more famous than the man from my own relationship. I know it can destroy a guy. How's your husband? And she's like, wow. and it's true. Her her marriage is falling apart. So she's like, okay. And like, that was kind of it. She, whatever. Years later, she, he, she said, um, as soon as she got a divorce, Burt Reynolds' agent would call her and be like, you want to date Burt? And she was like, and she was immediately gotten with her coworker, Gary Shandy. So she was like, no, I'm like with someone else. And every few months, his agent would call and be like, would you like to go on a date with Burt? And so finally, she sees him at this event. Things aren't going well with Gary. And she says, um, Bert's really funny. So I knew I had to be, I had to say something really funny to like catch his attention. 
And she said Bert had always wanted a child. Like, apparently he'd gone on so many talk shows being like, I can't wait to have a baby. I can't wait to have a baby that, like, Johnny Carson even, like, gave him a baby on air, like, as a joke. Because it was, like, known that Bert, like, really wanted a baby. So to be funny and impress him, she says, she goes, okay, okay, I'm ready to have that baby. And he said, when? When? And that he, like, comes over and meets her family. And then she's thinking, like, oh, my God, it's on. And then a newscaster named Tawny Little walks by and is like, I'll be waiting in the car. And that he was actually with Tawny Little. And so she was like, okay, never mind. And then a few weeks later, at Christmas, Bert call, Bert's agent calls her. And she's like, if Bert really wants to go out with me, tell him to call me himself. Bert then calls her and is like, I want to see you. I want to see you for Christmas. And they spend hours talking on the phone. And she's like, we can't. I'm still with Gary Shandy and you're with Tawny Little. And then he calls her again. He's like, Tawny's gone. Come come down here for New Year's. I love you. And um, this woman, and, th- and this is where it's like, this is, this is Lonnie shit, goes to Gary Shandy and is like, on Christmas, which is also his birthday. It's also Gary Shandy's birthday. Uh, no. She's like, honey, I'm going to Burt Reynolds for New Year's. And this is over. And like all wow. their families are there. And he's like, no, Lonnie. And she's like, sorry, babe, this isn't working. I'm going to go meet Bert. His family's like, hey, Gary, it's okay. Like, it's at least it's not some loser. It's Bert Reynolds. Like, you lost out to a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> and to Lonnie's credit, in her book, she wrote about how Gary Shander- Shandy is like, like, th- she wrote about their sex life in a way where like you stand up and like applaud Gary, where you're like, Gary's the man. So she gives him a nice send-off in her okay. book. And when she goes and is with Bert on New Year's for the first time, she finds out later that Tawny Little had left an hour before she arrived. Wow. An hour. And she found this out because Bert's longtime assistant, Elaine, wrote a tell-all memoir about being his assistant, which, like, what a cash grab. That's so evil, but also, <laughs> okay, it. good for her. Get it. Get it. And she, in her memoir, was like, he was balancing Tawny Little and Lonnie Anderson at the same time. And that's when she found out about it. That's when she found out in in the memoir years later. This is fascinating because he, that you wouldn't have any sense from what he's written that he had any interest in her at all, ever. Yeah, yeah. He acts as if she shackled him to a bed frame and was like, I'm going to fuck you. We're going to get married. We're going to have a kid. And I'm going to be your act. I'm going to be your wife. And like, he was like, oh, I guess. And you said he, it's stupid because his defense just doesn't make a lot of sense. Here, I'm supposed to be defending him. And I'm like, <laughs> he doesn't make <laughs> That's any okay. sense. You can sides. <laughs> I can. Uh, so he, he doesn't make any sense because he even says like up to the point where they were about to get married and they're at the altar, he didn't want to do it. And and he was like, oh, but all these people are here and like my mom likes her. And then he said all of his friends hated her. And then one said, and your mom despises her. And so he even put in digs that all of his family and friends just hated her. And every sign pointed to no. But for some reason, he just had to keep going on with it. He actually says something like when they go to get married, he says he's dumb and he knew, he should have known better and that he should have just went with his instincts, but he is just a self-described idiot and didn't take any of his warning signs. And other things he says, he says that he, um, the first time I called her the countess, she beamed. And from then on, it was always in her contract. So this, like, he made her, like, he added these, these details to her life that she loved so much that it was in her contract to call her the countess anytime she worked. Oh, oh, in the writer. Wow. Yeah. That, okay, okay, so much to cover here. So let's go back a second. This is in his first memoir. He describes this. He, he admits to it. And it's in her memoir. 
when she's doing these three TV movies back to back, is is in the wedding planning stages. Burt Reynolds famously and admittedly in his book planned every detail of the wedding and Lonnie just showed up. So this man literally picks out the flowers, picks out the carriage, builds a chapel on his ranch. Has He just has, he literally plans the wedding, which is very atypical uh, currently to gender stereotypes and especially at the time, like what man plans a wedding in the 90s, actually probably late 80s. Lonnie was so busy on these TV movies trying to pay off her IRS debt that she wears a dress that she wore the previous Christmas and she had evidence in her book. It's totally her being like, I wore a used dress my wedding, like shut up. She shows up in the dress to the wedding Bert planned for her. And so it's just so ridiculous to be like, she made me, she tricked me. It's like, Buddy, you picked out the flower arrangements. Are you out of your mind? Like, wow. no one forces you to do that. That you is know? wild. Their is stories so wild. couldn't be any more different. Uh, yeah, and also what's crazy is, like, in his own memoir, he's like, well, she was really busy, so I was forced to plan the wedding. And it's like, okay. But at the time, in the press coverage, it was like, Bert has planned this entire wedding. Isn't that so special? So, and she in her book is like, Bert tries to pretend we had a horrible wedding, but, like, it was, like, one of the most beautiful days of our lives, and, like, we'd been through so much, and it was, like, this really special time, and now he tries to say it's shitty. Also, her mom said to her on her deathbed, I cannot die knowing you might marry Burt Reynolds. Do not marry Burt Reynolds. And then her mom passes. And then Lonnie goes through the, like Burt gets off all these pills he's taking. He's taking so many pills and she helps rehab him off it that he becomes a different man. And so she ignores what her mom said, which is like, Lonnie, come on. Your your mom literally, her dying wish was like, don't marry this guy. But she's like, my mom knew the drug addicted Burt. This is a different Burt. I'm sure she'd approve of him. She marries him. Wow, this is fascinating. He's petty. She's not as petty as he is. He is extremely petty. The details he adds in here to try to make uh, it seem like it was never meant to happen. He even says, like, you're, you're saying that the wedding was nice. Like, she said it was pleasant and everyone enjoyed it. He says that, uh, and I actually had to laugh at this because I was like, why is this detail important? He says that they were supposed to spend their honeymoon. Uh, they were supposed to take a boat out and spend their honeymoon somewhere um, once they flew down to uh, Florida. And uh, she got seasick and couldn't go on the boat. So they had to go to Jupiter, Florida, drive to Jupiter, Florida instead and spend their time there. And he was like, talk about a bad omen. It's like, because she got seasick. Like, it was almost as if their wedding honeymoon couldn't even uh, reach the levels it was supposed to because she, of course, got seasick. Like, oh, my God, talk about a pain in the ass. Like, really? What is this? Yeah, also, like, that story works better if she's like, you know, we were supposed to go on the honeymoon, and she said, this boat's not nice enough. Give me a bigger boat. Okay, bad omen. But, like, a lady getting seasick is, like, really not on her. Like, you're really reaching for an omen. It says a lot about him. It says a lot about him that that was a detail he chose to add. Okay, so the guy who tried to stalk and kill Lonnie, her first husband, she is later friends with in life. She, she, because he's the father of her child. She has Christmases with this man. And so Lonnie's, like, friends with exes that, like, you know, I gotta say it's kind of crazy, but she's friends with like horrible men. She was like, she's friends with Ross still. And Bert is not. And so it really speaks to like, she has like a grace in class of like, we loved each other once, like let's move on. And he doesn't have that. What I will say, what is totally on her is that she had an amount of red flags that should have drowned her. And instead she still married him. So here's one thing that happens after two years of them dating. 
he had gotten on one knee, like you said, and was like, marry me. And she was like, okay. And she didn't know this was like a thing that I guess he did all the time. So she thinks they're engaged. Then one day, a friend of hers calls her and she's like, I'm so excited to see you down in Florida um, at Bert's big party. And Lonnie's like, what are you talking about? And the woman's like, I'm so embarrassed. I, I don't know. What are you talking about? So Lonnie calls Bert and she's like, honey, is there like a party? I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, I'm back with Sally Fields. She loves me more than you'll ever love me. Get away from me. And hangs up the phone. And that's how she finds out he'd been seeing Sally Fields and is back together with Sally Fields. And then a week later, calls her and is like, just kidding. Fuck Sally Fields. I take it back. Come be with me. And Lonnie's like, I'm so devastated. And he's like, it was just a blip. It was just a blip. Now that I know that I love you. And goes and gets back together with her. Red flag. Red flag. What are you doing? Like, red flag. And and also, kind of again to his point, it's like, well, it sounds like you could have been with Sally Field. Throughout your 11 years with Lonnie, there were many exit points. You know what I mean? Where you could get off the red flag train. And neither of you did. Um, yeah. Also, Jupiter, Florida, by the way, this is also where Celine Dion has her big house uh, in the episode that just aired. So Jupiter, <laughs> I learned, has no income tax. <laughs> because oh, wow. I was like, why are all these celebrities in Jupiter, Florida? Going to Jupiter. Yeah, and everyone DM'd me and was like, no income tax. I was like, okay. Oh. This is also where Ivanka and Jared just bought their mansion. And you See, Chelsea, this is why we wouldn't know that, because we are so... St- like, we would never know to, to get a house in Jupiter to avoid taxes. <laughs> I pay the most amount of taxes. I'm so stupid. <laughs> no, yeah. I was like, oh, I never even thought to look at living a place for money. That never crossed my mind. Okay, so then uh, another big part of their marriage we have to talk about is that they adopt a child. Yes, yes, and, please. Yeah, and they adopt Quentin. Now, I will say, in Bert's memoir that I read... He describes, like, basically, like, Lonnie's old. She's she's nearing 40, and she wasn't getting pregnant. And uh, I checked my dick out, and it's great. So, like, Lonnie's got an old cobweb womb, so we had to adopt. And then he describes, he, like, pretty much paints it as uh, they found a child. So he's like, <laughs> lo and behold, I got a call from someone being like, Bert, there's a mother here. Her, her, she wants to move on with her life. She's a stunning actress. And he's like, thank God, because Lonnie would have never approved if, if she'd been a cow. He's like, she's a stunning actress. She's clean. She's not on drugs. Like, all these, like, gross terms. And um, and the and the husband, the, the guy who knocked her up, is an NFL player. And he's out of the picture. But So, it's, so the kid's going to be a lot like you, like a real man. Oh, God. Right? And he's like, no drugs were involved, blah, blah. And this was like an angel baby, and they gave us the baby. That's my son, Quentin. And in Lonnie's memoir, she's like, I was checked out. I was fertile. But Bert had been on so many different pills that almost killed him throughout the years, his sperm count was really low and he didn't want to admit it. So they're both like going at each other's like uh, fertility. (laughs) And I will say the Burt one checks out way more because he literally destroyed his body so many times off of like Valium and like multiple pills. It's like that would track. So anyways, Lonnie's like, yeah, we went to an adoption agency filed the papers, I paid for it, and we adopted a child through the legal adoption system. But Bert is like, we found a clean child. I have to take credit of that clean. You know, it's wild that he said the thing about the clean and the drugs when he's the one who's on drugs. Is he projecting his own Truly, self like on going it? out of his way to be like, the mom's not on drugs. That's so funny. But you are, Bert. You are. It, it's, also, it's also so tough because Quentin is a real human. Quentin's, a ch- Quentin's an adult now 
who has these two accounts of his birth story. And I, I just hope he's okay because that's, uh, you know, that's real trauma making shit. Chelsea, um, I have to say the in this in this courtroom where we are dividing assets between the two, as Bert's divorce attorney, I will say 100% of the custody uh, should go to Lonnie and not yeah. Bert. It is so very clear in this book how how he is not meant to be a father. And even in 2015, so his, his, his son is an adult, okay? Even in 2015, the way he talks about him, can, can I read a, a couple of things please, he says? Please, please. Okay. He says, the worst part of the divorce was losing custody of Quentin, which I was like, oh, okay. He loved his son. I want to read about, you know, why it was the worst part of the divorce. And you learn that it's not about the son. It's about the reputation of being a father that he didn't like losing. So he says, I fell in love the second I laid eyes on Quentin. So he talks about Quentin like an object. And he says, I I took him everywhere with me, carrying around like a football. (laughs) <laughs> so he was like, I loved that thing. I carried him around like a football. I'm like, like a football? <laughs> <laughs> that can't be good. <laughs> like, like an object? And he says, Quentin knew he was adopted from an early age because somebody close to us decided to tell him. He never asked me about it. If he had, I would have said, I was lucky. I got to pick you. And I think this is so telling because he's saying that his son, he never had a conversation with his son about him being adopted. And when he knew his son learned about it through someone else, he never had a conversation and said, well, now it's about time to talk about it. He said, well, Quentin never asked me about it. And if he did, I would have said, I got to pick you. Like, what does that say about him? A terrible father. Terrible father. Also, like, uh, if you're a listener on this podcast, I also have a really fucked up birth story. Like, that shit fucks you up because it's sort of like um these are like the core tenets of your identity the sky is blue the grass is green trees grow your mother your father when you fuck that up for a child don't tell them their birth story don't explain things to them don't show love like that like you're wrecked you are wrecked i'm so sad and also you definitely get the feeling that like and this is this is also I'm relating this back to myself again. But like the reason why um, like sperm donors are always anonymous and families don't tell kids that they come from a donor is because the man has so much pride about his dick juice is working. Like if if people know you are adopted or you're a donor kid, that means people know that his dick isn't the biggest, strongest, fastest dick in the world, and like it hurts their hearts or something. And so then you become like a secret shitty child because you're protecting. The ditches. And so I'm pretty sure like Bert has a I, just knowing him like he clearly this whole adopted thing like he has it's like my dick is great. It's Lonnie's womb and he's adopted. Who cares? I'm sure he figured it out like just awful. Oh, just awful. That breaks my heart. Yeah. And you can tell that Lonnie, based on what he says about him, he doesn't even have many details about why he likes Quentin other than the fact that Quentin was around like you could just tell Lonnie took care of this kid Lonnie did everything for him she made sure he was fed and and was loved and and there's no way that Bert should have ever had him in the divorce that is yeah and also um a nanny goes on record that like he threw a chair at the nanny when Quentin was with him and so like there's a lot of things where um and yeah that that just I just hope he's okay and Lonnie describes Quentin and Deirdre in detail like they have really cool personalities like you really love the kids in these books here's the other big thing we have to discuss and I don't even know if it's in the 2014 book (laughs) so they are supposed to adopt a little girl after like a two years after Quentin Three weeks, like they have the girl they're supposed to adopt, which by the way, like love and prayers to whoever this woman became because they're supposed to adopt her. 
And Bert calls it off. Bert gets cold feet. He's like, we can't adopt another child. And they, three weeks before they're supposed to get this child, they send her back. So Lonnie later realizes that is the exact same week he started dating Pam Seals. And is Pam Seals in the book? No. That is outrageous. Okay, let me just take us through Pam Seals really quick. In Bert's first memoir, he talks about how Lonnie cheated. But he's like, I saw Lonnie in a pool with um, some, like, male helper thing, and I never fucked her again. I never had sex with her again. And um, and I went to the bar one night, and there was this amazing waitress named Pam Seals. And Pam doesn't date the patrons. And I said, that's the girl for me. And then he's like, Pam and I have a good life now. Lonnie wants to ruin it. The end. Like, he puts, like, a paragraph into it. The real story is that um, Pam Seals is a bartender that he starts cheating on in his marriage to Lonnie. And he brings her as an extra in his shows in, in an evening shade. So Lonnie can go back and see scenes where Pam is in the background. But she never knew this woman was around. Pam looks exactly like Lonnie. Literally wow. looks exactly like, like they're both these like big bucks and blondes with like big cheekbones. Um, and he, he basically um, leaves Lonnie for Pam. And this is where it's like all, like, this is where I think you're also going to just have to bail on Bert and be like, I cannot be your lawyer anymore. Um, he marries Pam after Lonnie and their marriage busts up some odd years later. She ends up taking him to court for the divorce and suing him for millions of dollars. And, and he's also like, Pam's a whore. Pam's a gold digger. <laughs> and it's like, you left Lonnie for Pam. And basically, he calls up Lonnie one day. And he's like, Lonnie, uh, I know our marriage isn't going well. Please come down to Florida. I want to have a honeymoon with you. I want to make our marriage better. She drives down to Jupiter, Florida. She says she and Bert were making um, family sandwiches where they would put Clinton in the middle of them and, like, squeeze them with couch cushions and be like, you're a sandwich. And then Quentin goes to bed. She's getting ready for bed. And Bert comes out of the room with suitcases. And he goes, Lonnie, I love you. I'll always love you. And I got to go. She was like, what? And he, like, wheels the suitcase out. And she, like, calls people. She's like, I think Bert just left me. But I'm like, actually not sure. Like, I really don't know what happened. In the morning, the lawyer comes, serves her with divorce papers. Divorce law was more favorable to Bert in Florida. So he had to serve her in Florida rather than the house where she was actually living. So he had to lure her to Florida. Then he gives her a thing. He's like, this is my house. You and Quentin have an hour to leave. And she has to run around the house, grab all her shit, and get in. I think he, like, sent her a limo or something weird to, like, send her out of the house. And then, like, helicopters are above them and putting it in the tabloids of, like, she's kicked out of the house. And oh he's God. immediately living with Pam Seals. And then Lonnie says, like, I ne- he's trying to pretend I cheated on him with this assistant. But, like, none of that ever happened. He's just trying to cover up that he was cheating on me for three years with Pam Seals and doesn't want, like, that to be unfavorable to him in court. Like, he's a cheater because this is the other thing. Adopting Quentin makes their prenup null. So they had a prenup where we divide our own assets. We keep the things we came into the marriage with. Bert writes in his book, there was a clause that if we have a child, the prenup goes away. I didn't know adopted children counted. Oh, my God. (gasps) This bitch. This bitch. So by adopting Quentin, the prenup went away. And that, like, quote, unquote, allowed Lonnie to, like, take him to the cleaners. Can you imagine how Quentin feels about 
Burke. Like, it seems like Quentin is actually very mild-mannered and quiet. It doesn't seem like he's someone that is very vocal. He just silently took this, like, weird kind of abuse and feeling less than a real child, less than a real son for a long time from Burke. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This detail uh, where um, Lonnie was uh, supposedly cheating on him, and so he's like, well, I'm done with you. It is such a a wild contrast to how he talks about their marriage publicly, because I was reading a bunch of things that he had said at the time. And the big uh, thing that he would say was, how could she be so surprised that I'd served her divorce papers? We haven't had sex in three years. Like, how how am I supposed to stay in a marriage if I'm not having sex with my wife? But he He's the one who was withholding sex from her. 100%. And also in her book, she's like, we had sex three weeks ago. We had sex three weeks before he divorced me. I also kind of got the feeling of like, he maybe told Pam his current, in this moment in time, his current new wife, uh, honey, I haven't cheated on you, the mistress, with my wife. I haven't had sex with her in three years. And then he had to tell the press they had had sex in three years because he told Pam that he wasn't fucking his wife. Um, Because it's... And, like, Lonnie was sort of like, look, he's a drug addict. We went through long periods without having sex, and we also still had sex because we were married. It's so, so clear that Bert likes things on his terms. Like, even just this that little example of that actress from Tokyo, um, Miko Mayama, and he flew her to the U.S. because he wanted to date her, and she didn't know any English. And, like, all just his relationships that he's had, everything's on his terms. So this was the first time, this marriage, that things weren't always on his terms because it's supposed to be equal, even though it probably still wasn't. Also, does Bert speak Japanese? Because if she doesn't, like, how are they communicating? How does he like her? Honestly, it is. And it, you know what's so bizarre about this, Chelsea? Everyone gets their own chapter in this memoir, except for Quentin. He is looped into the very end <laughs> of, of Lonnie's. Because oh, um, he doesn't, like, his son doesn't even get his own chapter. But his chapter on Dinah Shore, she has the longest part of this book. He talks about, I think it's because this book came out after her uh, Lonnie's memoir. So he was like, I'm just going to talk about all these other women that were so much better than her. Oh, no, he did that in his first memoir, too. Don't worry. In his first memoir, he's like, Dinah Shore is way better than Lonnie for chapters. Literally. He doesn't, he doesn't even, he's just flat out says that um and so uh miko has a has a paragraph before dinah in dinah's chapter for no reason what like i'm like wait a minute what does this have to do with anything like he had to throw it in that he like brought someone back from tokyo Oh, wow. Like, okay. Cool. Like, has anyone checked on her? Like, how scary Bert? <laughs> also, for anyone listening, Dinah Shore was 28 years older than Bert. Um, he was, like, a young dude, and she was a very older sexual maternal figure to him. I was going to say, uh, that is such a, uh, an interesting point, because he does talk about her age a lot in this book, and how... Uh, cool, Bert. <laughs> yeah. Good old, he talks about her age a lot and how it didn't matter to him, because she was... Um, he loved who she was and her kindness and her ambition. And he talks, he, it makes you like Bert, how he talks about their age difference and how it was a big media, uh, there was a lot of scrutiny with their age. And he he hated that because it had nothing to do with that. But then he threw age in in the face of, of Lonnie because she couldn't have kids or whatever. Yes, you know, like yes. she was so old and barren and cobwebbed vagina, you know, like all that weird right, shit the you cobweb said. Vagine. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's so true. Where, But that kind of shows like your own moral compass like he doesn't have his own moral grounds on these issues he just sort of has these issues and uses them to shift things into his favor i mean he here's the thing he could have married dinah short he could have married sally field it's kind of like that thing you do where 
he he did choose Lonnie. So it's very easy to be like, oh, I made the wrong choice. My life would have been so good with these other people. But it's like all that you'd be saying the same thing about Lonnie had you made a different choice. You know, Lonnie is the whatever that got away. So wild. Okay, I think we should read the last pages of each of their book, make our final conclusions, even though I think we kind of already know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, why don't you read Bert's 2014, then I'll read Bert's 1994. Last page. Yes. So the last page of his is in his own chapter about himself. And he says, I've had to reinvent myself four or five times. And now I'm working on the most challenging reinvention, survivor. And then he says, speaking of survival, my hair will probably outlive everyone. They'll find a skull with a perfect haircut, which is crazy because she talks about his hairpiece. Maybe I wonder if it's him being like, I don't have a hairpiece. It's my hair. <laughs> um, so he's pe- yeah, so he's petty here. Um, I hate self-pity. I believe it damages you and the people who care about you. They'll want to hear that you're happy. Well, I am happy. I live every day to the fullest, and I try to experience new things. As I look back, I'm proud of my accomplishments and disappointed by my failures. I always wanted to experience everything and go down swinging. Well, so far, so good. I know I'm old, but I feel young, and there's one thing they can never take away. Nobody had more fun than I did. <laughs> Well, at least there's that. Wow. Rob, you are I I cannot wait to read the last paragraph of this book. Oh god. Th- this is crazy. This is truly crazy. Okay. Okay, everyone, please know this is a book written third let's see, 1985 uh, 30 years before the book Rob just read the last paragraph of. <laughs> I'm convinced the best years are still ahead of me. Christ, I've got my father, my son, and my health. I can see all right. My legs haven't given out entirely. And my hair, well, my hair will probably outlive the human race. (laughs) They will find a skull with perfect hair on it. (laughs) He is fully, like, uh, plagiarized himself. Wow, he's got some themes. The only unfortunate thing which I've come to terms with, is that I'll probably never win the big one of my profession, an Academy Award. Oh, my God. But damned if I don't already have the speech repaired, and since there's no reason to let it go to waste, I'll deliver it now. I want to thank the Academy for finally realizing that I'm not planted at Forest Lawn. I want to thank God, whose sense of humor is even stronger than mine, but enough is enough already. I also want to thank my son, Quentin Reynolds, who has made me richer than any amount of money ever could have, and who has taught me more about life in a few short years than I ever thought possible. And finally, I want to thank the first director who ever yelled, action, because that's what it's all about. Wow. <laughs> I cannot believe he... <sighs> He the used hair the thing. same line about his hair. Yes, I have a theory. This is my theory. If someone is like adamant about a certain thing, so if like if, if someone is like, I may be a lot of things, but I'm not a liar. And if you hear that phrase constantly from them, they're a liar. Yep. Now I got this from one of my stepdads who would con- who who constantly in my childhood would be like, if anything ever happened to me and your mom, I'd give her the shirt off my back. I'd give her everything. I just want your mom to be happy. And when they went through the divorce, he literally was like. This plastic um, broken thing under the plant catching water, that's mine. Um, This, (laughs) like he literally stripped, like he took everything, but he would constantly say, I'd give her the shirt off my back. I'd give her the shirt off my back. And so I have a theory now, like when you're really pushing one line, it's it's just letting everyone know that you're lying about that. Like, I'll, I have the perfect head of hair. I have the perfect head of hair. Honey, that is all fake. All fake hair. Yep. <laughs> There's no way. There's just no way. I mean, especially at his age. No. <laughs> no. I also, like, Lonnie literally is like, yeah, his hairpiece melted off because this, like, fire. 
<laughs> this fireplace was too strong. Um, and also, he goes after her hair. Like, he's like, she's not a real blonde. Like, hair really hair really mattered to him. Bizarre. It's bizarre, actually. Okay, what do you think of my theory, though? Do you think that is a correct theory? I think that there's, I think that it shows an insecurity. So, um, if people are saying something about you, it may or may not be true if you keep bringing it up. It may may be untrue, but to you it matters that people don't think it's true. So, clearly, this is a hairpiece based on, like, she wouldn't make up that detail. She's not as petty as him. Like, she wouldn't make up a full-on detail that didn't exist. So, so for him, it really mattered that people thought he was a real man and whatever that meant, which meant that his hair was real and his talent was real, like he wanted an Oscar, like everything was real about him. So for him to, 20 years apart, use the same ending line about one detail that no one friggin' even cares about, like nobody really cares, Bert, about your hair and whether it's real <laughs> or that you didn't win an Oscar, you care about it. So he's saying it over and over because he's like, now now I, I have it in me to do it. So I'm sure this Boogie Night situation felt really good for him because he finally got that credit that he wanted. Um, But I I think that it's clearly an insecurity. Okay, that's a great way to put it. I feel like you, I think I I came to this theory when I was like seven and it's really been needing to level up for a long time. (laughs) And I think you just leveled it up of like, yeah, it's really, it's just at least pointing to what you care about and an insecurity you have about yourself, regardless of what is true or what is not true. Okay, I'm going to read the last page of Lonnie's book. There was a time I thought I'd lost everything. Here's what I actually lost. Bicoastal homes and household staffs, private jets, too many cars, a glamorous life, a public face, busyness, naivete, fear. Here's what I found. Wisdom, strength, Jeff. Jeff is her divorce lawyer who she starts dating, by the way. (laughs) Her divorce lawyer with Bert. (laughs) Wisdom, strength, Jeff. Courage to try new things, to take risks, a new closeness to my daughter as we raise our children together, just as we raise ourselves together. And I found time to think, to read to myself, to read to the kids in Clinton's class and go on field trips with them and watch them look in wonder at the big, scary world around them. I guess what I really found was myself. And just for the record, I am not now, nor have I ever been, anybody's victim. I am, and am quite happy to be, the high-heeled, bottle-blonde, ex-Sunday school teacher, fifth or sixth cousin, twice removed on my mother's side, or was it my father's, of all the strong and funny ladies, both in and out of show business, who have made me laugh and just given me hope throughout my whole life. Just in case I haven't said it before, thank you so much. It's nice to be back. Ah, you know, she is so likable. I, that she is very truthful and she's like, this is who I am. And uh, I, like, I had to work those jobs to pay for our bills. I uh, tried as hard as I could and I, and I wasn't necessarily always the best at this and that, but like, this is my upbringing. These are my roots and this is who I am. And I'm not afraid to say any of those truths. Yeah, absolutely. And she's just so honest. It's hard to not take her side over Bert's because had Bert given us this level of honesty, maybe we could really judge the relationship in a better light, but it's just so clear that he's covering up Pam seals. It's so clear. He's covering up certain things where it's like, well, then we're obviously going to take the account. That's more real. You know, even though you said he's very honest, it, it doesn't feel like he's honest in a detailed and thoughtful way. He is honest about everybody else in the book. Like there's a part where he says Donald Trump, uh, when he had met Donald Trump, he was someone that was born on third but thought he hit a a home run and hit hit a triple. And so his observations are so sharp and he's so smart and he's so honest with all the other people in his life that it's it's suspicious that he's not that way when it comes to this relationship. Um, He's clearly hiding things. He's clearly hiding details. He's covering for these 
things that he knows are, are not true. That's what I think it comes down to. Yeah, no, absolutely. And he clearly has been put in a position to like be a real man. And I think, you know, this is a podcast that gets very feminist. And I just want to point out like part of feminism is telling real men to be real men the way it was put onto Bert hurts men. You know, like Bert is the one who had to suffer from this. Bert has clearly had to suffer from things that he's kept hidden and things he can't be real about because we put these expectations on, if we're putting these expectations on women, the flip side is that a certain expectations go to on men and, and they hurt them too. And Bert's like a perfect example of that. Totally. And it, I think it comes down to the very first chapter with his dad. It came all from his dad to be a real man. What does it mean Big to be Bert. a real man? <laughs> Big Bert. He's, he's the root of all this toxic masculinity. <laughs> Big Bert planted the toxic seed. Okay, so <laughs> normally in this podcast, we do like a thank you to the authors. But because this is a Valentine's Day episode, I was thinking like we can thank the authors. But also, are there any things from reading about this relationship that made you think of like advice you have for relationships, being single, whatever, anything for like Valentine's Day that you pulled out from this book? Um, so I'll start. Here's what this book made me think of. Lonnie was told she was a ruined, old, haggard cow starting at 19 when she had a child. She then had many other boyfriends. She then meets Ross. Then she's told she's so successful and such a bitch that, that she's ruined and she's divorced twice. And Burt Reynolds calls her up two days later. And after Burt, there's Jeff, the divorce lawyer. And after him, there's her like high school love, Bob Flick, who she's married to now. There is always someone else. There's always someone else. And whether you are single or you are in a relationship, there is someone else out there for you. And if you're in a relationship, it should give you heart because um, you're choosing to be there. You're, it's not because there's no other choices in the world. You're choosing to be there because there's just a million people out there for you. And if you're single and you're like, how will I ever find love? There's Jeff is coming for you. And guess what? <laughs> Jeff's going to dump you too. But then Bob Flick <laughs> is out there. And it really made me think of like, people can, and you can tell yourself like, it's over for me and it's never over. It's everyone finds love and there's, there's love out there for everyone. That's great. Even if it's good or bad, <laughs> it might be a bad love, but it's out there. <laughs> <laughs> there's always the divorce attorney. Um, I think that for something that I learned from Bert is that it's okay being single. And sometimes it's better for you to live that way. You can afford your own lifestyle. You can do the things you want. You can live the life that you you want to um, if it, you're not meant to be with others. And so his lack of commitment with all of his relationships and then this final drawn out marriage and divorce and all of that is just a sign that there were all of these things that showed that he wasn't really meant to be with anyone. He wasn't meant to be a dad and he was putting this onus on himself. So if you're single and you're like, I really need to be with someone. I mean, do you really like, do you really need someone in your life to make it better? Um, is it going to make it worse? I think just being comfortable with the happiness of yourself is a really important thing. And I, I've been single for like three years and I love it. And uh, it lets me do a lot of the things that I feel a lot of freedom to it. And would I maybe eventually date someone down the road? Sure, if they come up. But it's not really, it doesn't define who I am and I'm not dependent on it. So if Bert took his own advice at the end of this book about that, he would have been a much happier and richer person. I love that. And also, you know, 
having that happiness in yourself gives you higher odds that if you do have a relationship, it'll be a good one. Because yeah. if you don't have it, like they're all going to go belly up. Like they're all going to Pam Seals sue you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, I love that phrase. <laughs> uh, Pam Seals sue you. Um, Rob, tell everyone where they can find you. And I highly recommend you follow Rob because I don't know how you produce this much content, but he makes the funniest videos you will ever see. And he puts them out all the time. So where can people follow you? Oh, thank you. Um, that's so nice. Uh, they're, they're, uh, let's see. On TikTok, my handle is heartthrobert, and on Instagram, it's heartthrobanderson. Um, either of those work. I post really dumb, silly little TikToks. Chelsea's being really nice. They're not silly. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really, stupid. they're really funny. They're really well produced. They, I, here's the thing. I'm, I'm, um, our friend Casey has this thing called like comedy trauma, where like you have so much comedy in you, you don't laugh at anything anymore because that's what I study. And Rob still makes me laugh, and I do not laugh at a lot because I, you know, do this for a living. So Rob, you really make me laugh. It's really smart, but also like gets to, I don't know, just something you want to laugh about. I also, I, I want to warn everyone so they're not shocked. Rob is desperately handsome. He's so good looking. You're about to look him up and be like, oh my God. Um, he's like the most handsome man in the world. And I just oh want everyone God. to be prepared for that. <laughs> wow, this is making me feel so good. Um, You're the Burt Reynolds I... of TikTok, Rob. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Everyone go follow Rob. But before everyone else goes, I have an incredible Valentine's Day surprise. Lonnie Anderson made a cameo to play on our podcast. Now, I went and requested it. Uh, I begged. And she made it. And I told her it was for the podcast and and that I read her book. And it's you're going to love it. I think you're going to love it. I absolutely love it. And, you know, I really ended up wanting to do a thank you for her. So I'm going to do it. Lonnie, thank you for being in the 90s and a macho man um, you know, one of those men that that everyone respects said she was a gold digger, that she was a cheater, that she was a slut, all the things that that really ruined a woman in every decade. But in the 90s, I, I you know, I can remember some of the stuff my mom went through. Men were just the trusted source on divorces. And it was always the woman's fault. And Lonnie kept her grace, kept her strength, and wrote this book and said, no, you don't get to tear me down, and I am going to tell my story. And, you know, in these memoirs and, um, you know, on TV and in the docs, we're really recognizing a theme of society just loves to ruin a woman. They just love it for sport, you know, ruin a woman and 20 years later make a documentary about it. And sometimes it's not always in a woman's control what happens, but Lonnie said, not me. And she didn't let them get her. And she's still so full of love and joy. So please enjoy this cameo. It, it, it really made me smile. Hi, Chelsea. It's Lonnie Anderson. And I am just so happy to know that you're reading my book and you're reading it with the podcast group. I wrote that book. It meant so much to me to tell my story. And I kind of think that everybody should write a book or a little short synopsis of their life or something to leave to the people that follow you. And uh, I'm glad you found some things <laughs> that you've marked the book and uh, that you're sharing it with your podcast. And it was very nice that you mentioned Santa Fe, that I met you and your mom in Santa Fe. What a beautiful place. And the one thing you did ask me, though, was to give some bad breakup advice. <laughs> better than me. 
to give some breakup advice. I mean, unless if you were alive in 1993, you know that I had the most public, outrageous breakup anyone could possibly imagine. It was horrible. So I do have some advice. Now, you and I, if I really wanted to get into it, we could have Milani and Chelsea several hour show about bad breakup, but I'm going to give you the top stuff. Um, first of all, you have to like yourself and you have to set an alarm and get up in the morning and get dressed and don't wallow in bed and don't feel sorry for yourself. Get up, get out there, get in the fresh air, take a walk, work out. And it's really important to eat right. So eating right, getting exercise will help you to sleep, which sometimes is hard to do when you're breaking up. The other thing I find very comforting sometimes is if you want to get out of your life for a minute, get into somebody else's. So pick up a book. Mysteries always work for me because not only is it somebody else's life, it's a puzzle I get to figure out. So throw yourself into that. Surround yourself with the people who really care about you. Don't listen to any of the negative. And remember that the person who broke up with you, they lost. They're the loser. They lost wonderful you. And that's what you have to keep in mind. And here's a little one at the end. Buy new bedding if you can afford it. <laughs> Chelsea, I have just loved chatting with you. I hope we get to do it again sometime. That's all for this week's episode. Stay tuned because Gabrielle Union's memoir is next week. And then we're getting into Kim Cattrall and Cicely Tyson. It's going to be a bunch of really great episodes. Thank you to everyone here at Stitcher, executive producer Daisy Rosario, producer Brandon Nix, and associate producer Corinne Wallace. If you want to listen to an ad-free episode, you can only do that on Stitcher Premium. And if you want a free month of Stitcher Premium, go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code BOOK. Thank you guys so much for your reviews. It, they've just been incredible to read. And thank you for your ratings and for your DMs. And if you want to see the visual story of Lonnie and Bert's wedding, the ring, the details, everything, I'm posting it all on my Instagram story at Chelsea Devantes. And I'm also going to be posting Lonnie's cameo. And I still, I'm still so happy that she did it. So I will see you all next week. <laughs>